Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. What wilt thou do when riot is thy care? <gasps> There'll be a wilderness again. Peopled with wolves, thy old inhabitants. Pardon me, my liege, there is your crown. And he that wears the crown immortally, long guarded yours, if I affect it more than as your honour and as your renown, let me no more from this obedience rise. God witness with me when I here came in and found no course of breath within your majesty. How cold it struck my heart. If I do feign, oh, let me in my present wildness die and never live to show the incredulous world the noble change that I have purposed it, coming to look on you, thinking you dead, and dead almost, my liege, to think you were. I spake unto the crown as having sense, and thus upbraided it, the care on thee depending hath fed upon the body of my father. And thou, most fine, most honoured, most renowned, hath eat thy bearer up. Then my most royal liege, accusing it, I put it on my head, to try with it as with an enemy who had before my face murdered my father. But if it did infect my blood with joy, or swell my thoughts to any strain of pride, if any rebel or vain spirit of mine did with the least affection of a welcome give entertainment to the might of it, let God forever keep it from my head and make me as the poorest vassal is who doth with awe and terror kneel to it. Hello and welcome back to the plays the thing your podcast for all things Shakespeare ladies and gentlemen it is sequel time we are here to discuss Henry the fourth part two uh, the last full play that we did was Henry the fourth part one and now we're coming back for its kind of um, lesser known brother play sister play Henry the fourth Part two, we're doing a one-off, just one podcast on Henry the Fourth. Part two, 
Um, and then we're going to pick up with another full set of episodes on All's Well That Ends Well. That will start in a couple of weeks. So my name is Tim McIntosh. I'm Brandon LeBlanc. And we were going to be joined by Heidi White, but she left us this little message earlier today. Hey, guys. So this is what my voice sounds like. I have a cold, and I actually don't feel that bad, but obviously I've lost my voice. So I don't think I can record today. I can't sound like this on the air. Um, So it's up to y'all whether you want to reschedule or record without me. I think you should probably just go ahead, but if you want to wait for me, just let me know. I'm really sorry. So, Brandon, that means it's you and me, man. We're yes. we're carrying we're carrying the load since Heidi's suffering from some sort of like quasi laryngitis bout. Yes, little little froggish there on that on that message. So we opted to skip on that one for today. Yeah, we're gonna have to skip on that one. Um, so Brandon, it's sequel time, <laughs> and I feel like I feel like there's a continuum. Um, of sequels. You've got really great sequels and you've got really bad sequels. I think on the great end of sequels, I would put a movie like The Godfather Part 2, which might arguably be better than the first Godfather. They're each of them were up for like maybe like the best movie that the United States has ever produced. That's and then fair. you have on the other side of the continuum something like um maybe Gremlins 2. <laughs> Which could which, have cast Heidi this morning, maybe, but right, yeah. right. We could have cast Heidi as a gremlin, given her froggy throat. Gremlins two, the kind of Not follow great. up to the surprise hit show eighties movie about a series of cute monsters that when they get wet they turn into like these horrible well gremlins. And the second movie is renowned for being like one of the strangest, most convoluted plots of all time, and consequently, one of the worst sequels of all time. So one of my questions for you, Brandon, is going to be, are we more on The Godfather Part 2 or on Gremlins 2 for Henry the Fourth Part 2? Yeah, it, it, I don't know that it's so convoluted that it's like The Gremlins. Uh, I feel like it, it wastes a lot of time getting us yeah. to Henry the fifth, which is yeah. like probably one of the greatest Shakespeare plays. Right. I mean, so right. it's weird. It feels like, it feels like several of the characters like back, you know, kind of backslide a little bit in this story, including Hal and the, and the King. And yeah, it's like they needed to do some setup and they didn't have enough for a full play. So they yeah. just kind yeah, of yeah, backfilled yeah. a little bit. Right. I, I think for a, like for Shakespeare's first audience, the source material was going to be a lot more interesting to them, obviously, than it is for us. So it's kind of like a retelling for us. We would tell the story of the American Civil War, and we would know characters. We would know John Brown and Stonewall Jackson and Ulysses S. Grant. So for them, they know these characters in a similar way. They know Harry Hotspur and... Henry Bolingbroke. And so, so Shakespeare is kind of recounting this famous episode from English history. The trouble is, one of the things that made the first play, Henry IV, Part One, so compelling was 
Hotspur. And Mm -hmm. at the end of that play, Hotspur dies. So our great antagonist is no longer on the scene. And for me, um, this play has wonderful, wonderful moments. But for me, Hotspur is the antagonist that made part one really go. And we clearly don't have him. And the play suffers that we don't have like a real unified, clear antagonist here. We talked a lot last time about how that external struggle um, mirrored Hal's internal struggle, right? The the kind of the characters, including Hotspur, kind of play out some of what's going on with him in between his, his as he moves from being Hal to the being Henry V. And yeah, right, there just doesn't exist there. The other thing I noticed was a lot of um, to 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 be fair to Heidi, who's not here. Falstaff gets a ton of screen time in this one, right? Tons, and he. Um, on his own, like, and I don't, I don't think he can carry it on his own as, as you know, as well as he does in the scenes with, with uh, Henry the fourth or with Hal in the, in the first yeah. clip. Yeah. And so, um, man, there's a lot of time with him and, and, and where he's kind of the primary and other people around him. It, it doesn't, I don't think it works as well. Yeah, so. I agree. So here's a quick overview of the play. And we you know what, I think it's pretty safe to assume a lot of you have joined us today, kind of like thinking, um, I'm not going to go see a production of Henry the fourth part two. It's not showing at my local community (laughs) theater. Um, There is by the way, a great YouTube version by the Royal Shakespeare Academy. Um, There's a great production of it. That's worth paying attention to. But I think most of you are going to be joining us having not neither read it nor seen it. So let me give you a real quick synopsis. As I said, Hotspur dies at the end of part one. So in part two, his father rejoins the rebel forces. So Hotspur was this rebel. He was taking it to King Henry IV. Now Hotspur's father is joining the rebels. But Hotspur's wife, excuse me, widow now convinces his father, called Northumberland in the play, to withdraw. So now the rebels are being led by the Archbishop of York, and a couple of lords, Mowbray and Hastings. Okay, so that's the kind of opening conflict of the play. And now we cut Brandon over to Falstaff. So Falstaff was in these great battles that we saw at the end of part one, and he picks up right where he left off, lying. He's (laughs) talking about like how great he was in battle, and he falsely claims that he's the one who killed Hotspur, even though it was Prince Hal. So he, you know, I'm the one who killed Hotspur and everybody in the tavern is loving it. Yeah, you're our guy, Falstaff, and he's drinking and having a great time. Meanwhile, Prince Hal and his friend Poins sneak up on Falstaff in the tavern. They're disguised. And while they sneak up, they're going to kind of prank him, but they hear him insult both of them. And they get kind of mad and howl and Falstaff have, you know, like kind of a a little showdown, but then they're called back to the wars because there's this war that's kind of brewing again between the established power, King Henry IV and the rebels. So we kind of quickly dispatch with the war, the King's army wins, but they don't really win. Do they Brandon by great fighting the way they do in, in part one. No, it's, it, 
Yeah, they they, they have a, what do they call it? A, a parlay, I guess, with the other leaders, right? Yeah. And I think it's one of Hal's brothers um, and then some of the older advisors are with him out on this kind of little diplomatic meeting to try and not have the big field battle um but it ends up being a a little bit a little bit shady so they yeah they kind of trick the other guy well the other guys into being complacent and send their guys off um and their guys take off for home asap and uh and then they arrest them yeah and then they go and like slaughter these guys who are like basically riding home so yeah yeah it's kind of um it's tough to really support the king's side. I mean, because it's basically cunning and deceitfulness that gets them the victory. And it's difficult because this is like real history that Shakespeare is trying to kind of stick to on some level. But he's also telling the story of the maturation of Prince Hal and his kind of um, maturing into becoming a king. So we're kind of a little bit at false purposes in that Hal's father and his army are winning through deceit while at the same time, we're kind of hoping that Hal grows up, stops yeah. just being, you know, like a tavern boy. So it's a little bit of a, it's kind of a murky, it's a murky moral point, I think, that's being made in the play. Yeah, I think I think I felt okay with the um, subterfuge up to the point of arresting them, right? Because if you're the crown, you're viewing them as as rebels and these right. are the leaders, and you're right. arresting the no, the nobles who 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 led an uprising, right? Right. So tricking them into sending their men off, I felt like was maybe within the bounds of strategy, and and then in arresting them, right? Just to, to arrest right. them, not not slaughter them. Um, it got tricky for me when they didn't send send the troops to chase down all their men who were just basically going back home. Right. Mm, uh, mm. Ostensibly they probably to go back to be farmers and whatever else they do. And till they are given a new noble to rule, <laughs> rule over them. Yeah. So that part was tougher. I did think it was interesting that they, and maybe this is what Shakespeare, how Shakespeare pulls it off a little bit is to keep, he keeps Hal out of that scene. So he doesn't really have him active That's a great in, that, point. in that, um, that whole deceit and, and then, and then killing. We don't really see exactly what he's doing during that period. Yeah, he's walked away from from his meeting with Falstaff, and it's not, it's it's a little bit unclear whether he's out on the front or if he's back kind of in the castle. Um, but it kind of keeps his hands clean from that particular thing to some extent. Yeah, yeah. Um, it on one of his brothers. So, speaking of keeping Prince Hal out of that scene, Prince Hal is kept out of a lot of scenes in this play. I mean, he's he's certainly a major character, but he's so much kind of in the wings in this play. Mm -hmm. I saw a comparison of his line number in the first play compared with Falstaff's and his line number in this play compared with Falstaff's. And I think Falstaff's might, Falstaff might even have more lines in this play. So it's kind of an interesting I really sympathize with Shakespeare here. He's really trying to accomplish a lot of things at the same time. And one of the things that he has to deal with is this incredible character that he's figured that he's created. Yeah. Falstaff. Yeah. And Falstaff was threatening in part one to overrun the whole play because he's so big. He's so funny. He's so 
larger than life. And now Shakespeare kind of, it feels to me like gives him the reins and in some ways, yeah, he lets him take over part two. Yeah. Yeah. You, I mean, you wonder if it's almost, um, he's letting, he's letting the character hang itself, right? Like the people loved it so much in part one. Yeah. We loved him. You and I loved him so much in part right. one, right? Like he's just kind of this rascal and that by giving him so much, by the time you get to the end of part four or part two, you're like, that was, there's just too much Falstaff going on. Mm-hmm. And part of mm-hmm. that's because he, he, he seems less charming right now. He just kind of seems more of, more of the cad that, that Heidi was, was seeing, I think yeah. last time. Yeah. Um, or that there's not going to be any maturity for him. And maybe it's to, it gets a, and then with Hal kind of mostly being out, it gets us to the point where, where, how can reject him the way he does toward the end of the yeah, of the play. and we don't feel yeah. so bad. About it. We feel less bad about it, I guess, or it feels more right. I I want to talk about that, but I first let's give everybody a little taste. If you have not had had a taste yet of Falstaff, so in this scene, we're going to hear the Lord Chief Justice first in a kind of confrontation with Falstaff, and Falstaff's <laughs> Falstaff's rejoinder to him is like the reason that we love him and the reason that he's so also kind of like tough to respect because he's just a cad. Let's listen to this. Do you set down your name in the scroll of youth that had written down old with all the characters of age? Have you not a moist eye, a dry hand, a yellow cheek, a white beard, a decreasing leg, an increasing belly? Is your voice not broken, your wind short, your chin double, your wit single? (laughs) And every part about you blasted with antiquity, and will you call yourself young? Fie, 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 Sir John. My lord, I was born with a white head. (laughs) And something around belly. For my voice I have lost it with hallooing and singing of anthems. To approve my youth further, I will not. The truth is, I am only old in judgment and understanding. So, there's our beloved Falstaff um, <laughs> getting off the hook with with the Chief Justice, the Lord Chief Justice, um, so he can kind of like live another day and swill more sack. Um Brandon, it seems to me like the real, there are two key moments in this play and they both happen in um, act five. One of them is how accepting the crown, kind of taking the crown, but accepting the crown from his um, dying father. And the second one is this conversation, if you want to call it that, that he has, has with Falstaff at the very end. Let's talk about the first one first. Um, we finally see how take the throne. It's the thing that we've been looking forward to, you know, for the last two plays, basically. Has Hal matured enough to wear the crown well? Oh, um, it's, it's strange. He um, he still does some of the cutting up with the other uh, points. The guy's name that yeah yeah points. Um, um, but even even with him, he checks him a little bit. Like, are you expecting me to have to? I think it's about marrying his sister or whatever. And 
um, there seems to be this growing kind of check even to his even to his merrymaking. I think it's uncertain until you see him right before. I think it's right. I think he's technically not crowned yet. But when he walks in and he speaks to the to the guy that's like the sheriff and to the um and to his brothers. Hmm. And he assures them that they don't his brothers they don't have anything to fear from him and that he's taking this seriously. And then the guy who arrested him for 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 and put it, you know, as prince, he listens to his argument for why he did it and that he and that he would serve him the same way as king. And he answers in a kingly way. Yeah, good. Do a good job for me as well. Right. And so mm. I think he I think we start to see that there. It's interesting that I so I watched the version you were talking about the Royal Shakespeare Company version. Yeah. And then I watched the um, Hollow Crown version again, which I'd seen a long time ago. Um, I, listened, I listened to an audiobook version of it. I was just kind of get a couple different versions in my head, and and um, and those lines are delivered somewhat like differently. So when he when in the in the Royal Shakespeare version, when he tells he turns to his brothers and says something like, "This is the English court, not the Turkish one," you know, uh, referring to times in the Turkish court where they and 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 I'm losing the story right now where they the guy basically killed his brothers off to make sure they didn't. Mm take his throne i can i can't think of the three people's name now but in the royal shakespeare version he, he like it's delivered very seriously mm. like it's kind of a, like but hiddleston in the other version it's like a joke he's like this is the english court not the turkish court like he's kind of laughing at he kind of makes like, a laugh out of it yeah he's like guys smile like this is you know yeah we, we're all sad about our father's death but like don't don't look don't add sphere to your to your sadness basically um so it's interesting the ways that can be played but I feel like we we mostly got there by the end of part one, which is why I was saying at the top of this that it felt like they kind of regressed the characters a, a little bit just to kind of fill some space in this one. Yeah. Which was strange to me, but um, I don't know how else to say that. Like, it seems like, you know, I was trying to think of something else where they stretched it, like stretched a story to more movies than it should have been. Maybe maybe the Hobbit movies, right? Like, they, oh, took a, yeah. they took a small book and made it three movies when it should have been one, maybe two. And I feel like maybe there's there just wasn't a good way to bridge that gap between Henry the fourth and Henry the fifth um, without this kind of stretching it out a little bit here in the middle. Yeah. Yeah. It feels the play feels really, it feels baggy to me. There's mm-hmm. just a lot of, there's a lot of gravy, but not a lot of meat. <laughs> if that, if that makes any sense. Yeah. 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 The, the Royal Shakespeare theater the guy who plays Hal, um, Alex Hassel, mm-hmm. I really liked him. And I noticed that when he took the crown, he there's a, there's a certain kind of demeanor that he allowed to kind of take over. He became very stern very quickly. Mm-hmm. And the kind of levity that we see through the first play and most of this play is gone. And I appreciated the choice that Alex Hassel made. It was kind of like a, um, I read it as I'm not really ready for this, but I am going to fake it. You know, Mm -hmm. like I'm going to kind of like take on the demeanor and I'm going to pose with respectability even if I'm not really, if I don't know, even though I don't know that I'm really up to this task yet. And it sounds like right. I haven't seen the hollow crown, but it sounds like Tom Hiddleston maybe plays it a little bit lighter. Like he wears the crown a little easier. Is that fair? 
It's hard to say because I, I feel like in both of those in that scene, I think you're right. He, he definitely comes on. It's um, he probably takes a more stern in, in the Royal Shakespeare Company. He takes a more stern kind of um, stoic look, right? Yeah, almost immediately. Uh, I think Hiddleston's is probably a little bit more um, forlorn, and, and and I think he maybe he maybe catches better the part where he's acknowledging that the weight of his crown is what ultimately has crushed his father but that his father held it to pass it to him and he's going to pat hold it to pass it to his, his son. And which is what yeah. he says to his father when it's after he realizes his father's not dead. And so I think both those things are there in the, in the text, right. That kind of sadness about the weight of what this crown does to, to, to someone. Yeah. Um, and then that kind of stiff upper lip. Um, I'm, I'm going to just bear up until I'm, until I actually am ready. And I think you're right. I think that's captured better in the Royal Shakespeare Company version. Um, yeah. And again, it's one of those things which how how much do you play it one way or the other, uh, which is what yeah. makes all this really interesting. Yeah, it really does. That's one of the things that I love talking about, the differences that that actors make. It, 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 I recognize the danger of kind of doing it on a podcast is people have not usually seen, unless you're a complete nerd like me, you know, more than one performance of a play. But it's worth talking about for me because it kind of gives a range of interpretation. And I think like really good actors are the best critics, the best interpreters. So seeing yeah. how Prince Hal takes this crown that has seemed beyond his maturity level, seeing how a couple of different accomplished actors see that moment is really interesting to me. Really interesting to me. Yeah. Um, let's talk about this second moment. The second moment is um, Falstaff goes to court. Hal is now King Henry the Fourth. He's no longer Prince Hal, and it's really clear that what Falstaff is expecting is that his old buddy Prince Hal is going to welcome him with open arms. And maybe even give him a spot at court. It seems to me yeah. like he's expecting that, right? And then he should expect that because, I mean, there are so many occasions. I remember in the first act of part one, that's a lot of what they're joking about. Falstaff is kind of angling for a place on the court when Hal does become king, you know, at the same time. Falstaff and Hal are pretending to be Hal's father and they're kind of making a mockery out of the entire court and of the king and of all the trappings. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's, it's done in jest, um, but it does seem like it's really clear Falstaff is expecting his buddy to take care of him. Yeah. And he shows up and that is not at all what he gets. Uh, in fact, let's, let's play the audio right now. I want to hear these lines. This is Prince Hal having been crowned. He's now King Henry V. And this is him meeting his old drinking buddy, Falstaff. Save thy grace, King. 
king howl, my royal howl. The heavenly garden keep, most royal imp of fame. Save thee, my sweet boy. Lord Chief Justice, speak to that vain man. Have you your wits? Know you what it is you speak. My king, my Jove, I speak to thee, my heart. I know thee not, old man, full to thy prayers. How ill white hairs become a fool and jester. I have long dreamed of such a kind of man, so surfeit swelled, so old and so profane, but being awake I do despise my dream. Make less thy body hence and more thy grace. Leave gormandizing, know the grave doth gape for thee thrice wider than for other men. Reply not to me with a full-born jest, presume not that I am the thing I was. For God doth know, so shall the world perceive that I have turned away my former self. So will I those that kept me company. When thou dost hear, I am as I have been. Approach me, and thou shalt be as thou was. The tutor and the feeder of my riots. Till then I banish thee on pain of death, not to come near our person by ten miles. For competence of life, I will allow you that lack of means enforce you not to evil. And as we hear you do reform yourselves, we will, according to your strength and qualities, give you advancement. Be it your charge, my lord, to see perform the tenor of our word. Set on. That was King Henry speaking to, not even speaking to, speaking at Falstaff. I know thee not, old man, fall to thy prayers. How ill white hairs become a fool and jester. I've long dreamed of such a kind of man, so surfeited, swelled, so old and so profane, but being awaked, I do despise my dream. Um... It's brutal, Brandon. Yeah. Yeah, and it's it's easy to for us, I think, to watch it and think he's a ridiculous fool that he would have expected it, right? But everyone in the play expects it. The king expects that's who that's who Hal's gonna let be in his court, those kind of false off and others like him. Mm. He says it, you know, in some of his kind of diatribes and the other, uh, I can't think of the guy's name. The other guy's kind of had loaned money to to Falstaff, a thousand pounds. That went in, um, when he was out recruiting, he expects that that he'll be in Hal's court and have the money to pay him back. And that it it doesn't seem like to people in the play. It's this. It's an unreasonable thing that he believes about himself. Yeah. Even though it may appear so to us, and so it it's it's a rough blow. Like it's not like. I don't know. It, it seems like it was a very real expectation for him. And, and now he's just kind of pretty cast out. So it makes me think um, that this is kind of, this is the King's, the newly crowned King's first major decision, you know, in a way I, I just know, I think there's an analog when an elected president in the U S is inaugurated one of the first questions or even before the inauguration one of the first questions facing his administration her administration it'll happen soon um is who is going to be on the cabinet 
who are the chief advisors going to be? Mm-hmm. And any president who has been elected has lots of debts to pay to people, like lots mm-hmm. and lots of debts to pay to people. And this is kind of Hal's first big administration question. Yeah. Who's he going to put on his cabinet? Yeah. And is that big clown going to be who's talking about he's the one who killed Hotspur and what a decorated soldier he is, et cetera, et cetera. Um, is he going to be on the cabinet? And it seems to me like how really has to tear his heart away from Falstaff. I think he really loves the man uh-huh. despite all of his failings. And part of the reason for his, for, for Hal's abruptness is that he's kind of going against his heart in a way because he knows yeah. the right thing to do is to leave this man out of leadership. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I think he know. I think he sees the handwriting on the wall and sees that there's things he's going to have to deal with that he can't even have this guy around. is just kind of a joke. You know what I mean? Like he just, there can't be any distraction from, from yeah. fall staff. And so, um, yeah, he has to make it so brutal and so and so sharp a cut. Yeah, but it's it can be hard. To, it can be hard to watch, especially depending on how it's played by the Falstaff actor. But yeah, I like how um, how it was played in the version that we've been talking about. His response is one of silence. Mm. I mean, he holds that silence for a long time. Like this is yeah. not what he was expecting. And now he's a man cast out. Um, now he's a man whose future is going to shrivel rather than, rather than expand. And it's heartbreaking. It's really heartbreaking, especially if, I mean, I, I wonder what Heidi would say about this because she's just not a fan of false stuff. I think she appreciated his wit. She appreciated you know, how larger than life he is. She appreciated him as a theater character, but um, I wonder if she might have been a little bit less heartbroken than than me. I don't know. Yeah, it's interesting because I like that's a that's a stage version that you were talking about, right? With the Royal Shakespeare Company, and there's that there's that long silence at the end of the the king's speech to him because the next person, to, I mean, he's the next person to speak, but it's a long long silence and then in a film version they're able to do other things right with the camera yeah so they're close on fall staff and there's other points where where the in the lines you see it in his face right like the um -hmm. the banishment you on pain of death line Mm -hmm. and and how our our king henry uh at that point um pauses more in that version in a way that um allows them to do some of that camera work. So it's interesting what you can do with the same scene different ways. Yeah. But yeah, I think you're right. I think for me, it's, and maybe, maybe part of it is, um, you know, you and I, I mean, this came up in the, in the last play, right. That you and I are dudes and we've had dudes who we <laughs> grew up with who didn't grow yeah. up. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. And, and uh, that wasn't a, an experience Heidi has. Right. And so that, yeah, when you have to finally just kind of let that guy let that guy go. Yeah, right. I've known people who who came to that realization at their wedding when that guy was just acting the fool at their wedding. Like, all right, that guy's done. Like, we're out. Yeah, out. yeah. I, I, I'm, I, I'm a married man now. 
Right. I'm, I'm, I'm moving toward family life. Like this guy's just out of my life now. He just, this, he couldn't even behave at a wedding. Right. Like, so I think, <laughs> right. um, I, I think that's an experience probably that more guys have had with that kind of thing. I'm sure there's a, I'm sure there's a, I'm sure there's a corollary female version, but it's different uh, I yeah. think in some ways. So, um, yeah, so I, we, I know the kind of knucklehead he's cutting out of his life. Right. And so, um, so he can go on and be king. Right. Yeah. So, um, the next, the play that follows this one is Henry V. Um, those of you who follow close reads or the plays, the thing, the podcasts know that we've already done Henry V. So if you would like to kind of rec- read the sequel to the sequel, that would be Henry V. It is a great play, an absolutely great play. Some of the best monologues in all of Shakespeare's canon. So I encourage you um, to listen to those podcasts after seeing a good production. I would recommend the Kenneth Branagh version. That's the one he kind of made Henry V um, famous. It's a wonderful movie that he did. And there's also a really good Laurence Olivier version of Henry V that I recommend to you. Um, okay, I'm going to turn a corner here, can Brandon. I, can I ask we you have, a quick yeah, question? Yeah, yeah. Please. Because I, I watched those two productions. Yeah. And and there was a choice there. Like, I didn't even know it was in it because I, I had only ever watched the Hall of Crown version before this. Yeah. And then when I listened to the audio book version of it, there's that weird epilogue that oh, isn't yeah. included. And it's like an apology for the play. Like, sorry, that wasn't that great of a story, but there's another one coming. Yeah. Do, do you know, is that, is that often left off when it's, when it's, when it's oh, yeah. produced? Okay. I only have seen two versions of this and in one it was included, but I'm just thinking as a director, like you cut that off. Okay. And the whole, Yeah. Yeah, you it's cut just that weird off. like apology to the to the audience. It was just so strange. I know it is really anyway, strange. I just wanted I had really to ask strange. about it because I was like I hadn't heard anything like that. So, so Brandon, this is we haven't done the plays of the thing during the summer, and yeah. um, we came back, and I just want to kind of like look forward to a couple of changes that are happening, and one of the changes is that we have an assistant. We're bringing on an assistant producer, and I'm going to introduce her for a second. She's fresh back from London. She was in London right after the king, the queen's death. Um, and by the way, I, f- I ran across these photographs today. In fact, I sent them to Sophia, who I'm going to introduce you guys to in just a second. Um, they're of Queen Elizabeth attending a production at the Royal Shakespeare Theater, I think in 1997. And she's meeting an actress who is playing... Elizabeth the first, of course, Shakespeare wrote during Elizabeth's time, the Elizabethan era. And there's this picture of the white queen, you know, Elizabeth the first is kind of traditionally has very fair skin. And, and oftentimes actors will kind of like put it like, I don't know, powder, powder over powder yeah. their faces. So there's a picture of this actress. I wish I knew her name with an odor overpowered, overpowdered face meeting the queen. And it's so sweet. It's so tender. And the, and, and the Royal Shakespeare Theater had this little subtitle or, or subtext that said, um, Elizabeth I meets Elizabeth II or something like that. Nice. It was very clever. Um, so anyway, I want to introduce everybody to Sophia Maeda. Sophia just graduated 
from Hillsdale College. She studied classics there. She ran cross country and track, and she is going to be helping us out behind the scenes. So, Sophia, welcome to the show. Thanks, Tim. It's really fun to be here. It's really fun to have you. Do you have um, a memory that you can share with us about your time in London? Was there anything that you saw that really stuck out to you about your time in London right after the Queen's death? Yeah, I went, the funeral was today, but I went beforehand to hopefully do the line in state queue that turned yeah. out to be kind of a pilgrimage type of walk. We um, stood in line for 16 hours and walked 10 miles. Um, no One of way. my friends that I made was 70 years old. Wow. And no she way. Walked without stopping, like they walked the whole way. Um, and along the route was the globe. And we all stopped at the Globe and walked around. We didn't get to go inside the theater, but used the bathroom at the Globe and walked around their gift shop. And so that was one of my favorite things, other than seeing the Queen, of course. Of course, Why yeah. Okay, yeah. so let me understand this. You stood in line all this time and you walked 10 miles. Is that because the line was 10 plus miles long? Yep. yep. Really? Yeah. Yeah. And it's just winding through the city. Yeah, we started in Southwark Park, um, walked that park for three miles, and then walked up the Thames all the way to Westminster. Wow. Um, yeah, Westminster Hall. We stood for like three hours just in front of the hall. So, really? Yeah, it was a crazy, crazy experience. The people. And so, so after walking 10 miles, what happened at the end of that 10 miles? You walk into Westminster Hall. Um, and everyone, it was crazy. It went from being totally like, I mean, not loud, they're British. So it was very <laughs> subdued, but just chatting. It's midnight. We started at nine 30. We got to the Westminster hall at midnight. Um, everybody's chatting and then we go inside the hall and it's just complete silence. Really? And, and it went from like people, like it got so more somber as we got like through security and then complete silence. And like people were crying, almost the whole group was crying and, as we got closer and closer, because all you could see was the coffin with what we mm. saw today. I don't know if you guys saw any pictures of the coffin. That's what we saw without the flowers on it. So um, it's the coffin with the crown and a couple other of her royal, the scepter um, and a cross mm. with her flag over it. Mm. And so people would just file by and bow or curtsy. And right as we got to the coffin, right before we were all about to bow, my like group before the people that I was walking with the guard changed. So we got to watch the guard that was standing guard change. So we got to be in there for what was normally like a probably three minutes for like seven or eight minutes. Oh, wow. Wow. Phenomenal. That's wild. Um, yeah. Tell us how your this friend that you made, this 70 year old, what was their demeanor like? It was crazy because, so I met two people in two, a couple in their fifties and then this woman in her seventies. And it was for them and for the rest of the queue, everyone was so polite, eh, and calm. Like everyone had just committed mm. themselves to this long walk. So there was no pushing. There was no, everybody was just very friendly. Like I was by 10 hours through everyone sharing snacks up and down the line and like holding spots so people can go to the bathroom. Mm. Um, but it was incredible hearing. They all just said, we feel that we can sacrifice one day of our lives for the 70 years that she sacrificed wow. for us. Wow. Mm. 
and just the overwhelming gratitude that they had for her was really? just amazing. Yeah. Boy, I got chills. Yeah. And, yeah. And that you got a little extra time in there also. That's yeah, we were just, not expecting that. That's amazing. Sophia is going to be helping us with research. And I have asked her, Brandon, I think she might need a little cajoling, which I think that you should consider doing right now. I have asked her if she'd be willing to play the role of the question asker during the Q&A episodes. So we won't have a Q&A uh. episode for Henry the Fourth Part 2 because it's just a one-off. But what do you think, Brandon? What's your best argument to Sophia about why she should be the person who asks the questions? I like it. She can, she can be an actual representative of the audience. And that way, the people who are on the show can just answer so yeah, I like this plan a lot. Yeah. And if you've been to any of our conferences, you know, the Maeda family, she's just well, part of the clan that has been a part of yeah. what we've been doing and part of Tim's life. So this is exciting. I'm, I'm, I'm excited to have Sophia along. Me too. Um, so you'll probably be hearing more from Sophia at the end of our um, next set of broadcasts, which will be about uh, the play All's Well That Ends Well. So let me just tell you a little bit about that. Um, we're bringing back for All's Well That Ends Well what I'm calling the shrew crew. Right. The shrew crew are the two contributors that were part of the taming of the shrew, Matt Bianco. Matt has been on a few of these broadcasts and also Nora Ankrum, who played a big role in this year's West Virginia Shakespeare Festival. And apparently she um, had a role in the production of Taming of the Shrew. And she texted Matt and I <laughs> offline and she said that she got chewed out for perform for helping perform the role because you know it has this kind of like misogynistic interpretation and so Nora was we're going to ask Nora to talk a little bit about that well, I'm really curious um, during who the team what's that I'm curious who chewed her out I get the sense that maybe Matt likes to name the shrew crew better than Nora might but uh, oh. <laughs> yeah that's probably I didn't ask anybody's permission that I might get in trouble for that um I also want to thank Logan Green, our fearless audio editor. Um, he is also behind the scenes for all of this. And I just want to seed one little thing. I have been working on a project for a long time, a Shakespeare-related project, and I can't quite tell everybody what it is yet, but it will be released and available for public consumption in one month. And um, Sophia's sister, Mercedes, actually has a role in this production that I can't really say anything more about. So I'll be giving more information about that. This is just like a terrible tease that I'm nice, doing. Nice, I like it. Um, sometime <laughs> yeah. during the All's Well That Ends Well episode. So be looking forward to that. Well, I'll, Brandon, I'll go ahead any, and tease some things I can't talk about either. Yeah, please, please. Uh, so be on the lookout. Cersei has two new podcasts that will be coming out in the next few months here in the fall and their their content and names will remain secret for the for the time being but those are on the on the horizon and obviously we we kicked off uh relaunching the quiddity podcast kind of around the time of our our national conference so there's some really good interviews on there to go check out too if you haven't already and then tim i've been with you on henry the fourth one and two and we've done anna karina together i feel yeah. like i need to come back at some time for something funny a comedy. Oh, I know. Yeah, <laughs> right, right. You do need to come back for something funny. Well, we do have a few um, comedies left in the canon. Our goal for this podcast is to do all of Shakespeare's plays. They won't all get a full 
five-episode treatment, some of the smaller plays or the lesser-known plays will just get a one-off like this. Um, but there are some comedies left, and Brandon will bring you back so we can so we can laugh and not just like it's not just all bloodshed and bad history. <laughs> Sophia, thanks again for joining us. We will see you on subsequent shows. Brandon, thank you for joining us. Uh, we want to wish everyone a hearty thanks for joining us um, and to stay tuned for our next episodes on All's Well That Ends Well. Until then, thank you and happy listening to The Plays The Thing. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.